Hey everybody and welcome to episode 21 of the Aquascaping Podcast. I'm your host JR and joining us today as usual is Sean. We're getting a lot of good feedback on last week's episode with Art Panam. Just want to share a couple of the comments here. Uh, I think the sentiment is shared by all of the listeners, uh, including myself. Here's one from Rebel. Art is the master. Please come back. We miss you very much. Your contributions to the hobby are very much appreciated. And here's one from Damien. Art Panam is the single reason I got back into the hobby of aquascaping made me think about it a lot more and my scape is amazing compared to a few years ago thanks art for the enthusiasm i got from listening to you if you have comments and questions you can send them into aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com all the shows are up on itunes we're also now broadcasting on stitcher radio and you can check them all out as well at our archive at aquascapingpodcast.com Alright guys, it's time to move out of the Stone Age. I'm going to upgrade to my first rimless style aquarium. Can you believe it? It's time to depart away from those rimmed tanks. Uh, You can create something beautiful, no doubt about it. But after a while, that rim really starts to stick out like a sore thumb. Especially when I look out there and see what you all are creating. And I get super inspired and quite frankly a little bit jealous. So I think it's time to move up. Checking out what's available in the U.S. I got my eyes fixed on an ADA60P at the moment. But I'm going to leave my options open. Do a little bit more research. But hey, what's your next step? What are you going to do next? Maybe it's time to finally upgrade to that pressurized CO2 system, or maybe it's time to create a new scape, or even if you're working on a scape right now, waiting for it to mature, you know, now's a great time to start planning out your next one. The more lead time you have, the more thought you put into it, the more intent and purpose, the better off you're going to be. The more you create, the more aquascapes you put together, the more you learn about what you like and dislike. And, you know, hey, sometimes it might be surprising to learn that you don't like one certain style as much as you thought you would, and you start to gravitate towards something else. I put together a couple scapes so far, and I'm learning that I don't like to trim as much as I thought I would. In the beginning, it's really fun, especially when things are growing well. You're like, wow, you know, this is awesome. You could trim, propagate, fill up that aquarium really quickly, and uh, get a really dense population of plants. That's very fun. But after a while, it's a lot of work, especially when you're trimming a lot of stems every single week. I have a low-tech setup. That grows very slowly, but there's very low maintenance, and that's really fun as well. So I think for the next scape, I'm going to do something somewhere in the middle, high-tech, but maybe with plants that don't grow as quickly or that I don't have to trim as much. So I think I'm going to base the design and style off of that. But what are you guys learning? What are you learning about the current scape that you're creating right now, about what you like, what you dislike? What would you do differently next time? Uh, These are all things to think about, kind of reflect on, and start planning. Start planning that next scape. One of the things to think about when you are planning that next aquascape is what substrate are you going to use? Which substrate is going to work best with the style and goals that you have in mind for that aquascape? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And Sean's going to go into the science and chemistry behind substrate, break it down really easy for us and help us decide which direction uh, we're going to go and maybe even break apart some myths about substrate in the process.
All right, before we jump into the main topic, I just want to remind everybody out there in Europe, there's still time to enter into the EAPLC. You can go to EAPLC.com. You can find out all the information there, application guidelines, judging criteria. You can register. It's worth getting involved with. Here's Yuris with a little message on the EAPLC. EAPLC is the biggest European aquascaping photo contest. If you are from Europe and you haven't entered yet, so do so now. EAPLC is still open until end of September. Simply go to www.eaplc.com and enter today. We have Nano, Normal and Wabikusa categories. There will be a great rewarding ceremony. We call it EAPLC Party in late November. So if you take part, it will be awesome to meet you there. Take care. Yours. So remember, you got until the end of this month. Check it out, eaplc.com. Hey there, podcast listener, Sean here. I gotta say, wow, has it been a whirlwind of a couple weeks here on the Aquascaping Podcast. We've gotten to speak with George Farmer, Art Panam, coming up here in at least the time period that I am currently recording in. We're going to be talking to to Yuri's out of Germany. Uh, It's been really cool to get an opportunity to speak with these people, and so uh, it's just been been something i'll tell you um but i want to make sure that we do continue to get in some of our segments as well and let's do that today and let's tackle a topic uh, we haven't really talked about in detail on the podcast yet and that is choosing a substrate as you will hear me often say, uh, you know, first you need to know what are your goals for the scape? What do you plan to accomplish? What kind of uh, a scape are you looking at doing? Do you have some picture in mind uh, of the scape, of the plants that you're looking at doing? Uh, it's a good place to start before you start um, deciding um, all of these different factors like lighting and CO2 and substrate uh, that will be required to to accomplish that goal. So uh, a lot of times when I hear new aquascapers um, set their goals, those goals don't necessarily align with their budget. Unfortunately, budget can be something that's going to dictate what some of your goals are, or at least what you can reasonably expect to accomplish within your setup. Uh, It doesn't mean you can't have a beautiful aquascape or beautiful planet tank, Uh, you know, in the similar vein as what Stephen Chong said in our interview with him in an earlier episode uh, about all healthy planet tanks or aquascapes being beautiful. At the same time, all budgets can make a beautiful aquascape as long as we know how to work with what we have and effectively allocate our resources to achieve our goals. So for the purposes of this episode, we're going to break it up into two categories. The first is inert substrate, and the second is active substrate, for lack of a better term. And that's the choice you're going to have to make. Which way do you go, inert or active substrate? And that's going to be based on the aquascape that you have planned and what you'd like to achieve with that. So what is an an inert substrate? Well, an inert substrate uh, will not interact with the water, the fertilizers, or the plants. That's essentially what is meant by inert. It doesn't really have any chemical interactions with anything. So inert substrates don't provide nutrients in a bioavailable form to the plants. So these are substances or substrates like gravel or sand. And believe it or not, even things like eco-complete, yeah, 
Eco-complete is an inert substrate. Uh, I bet some of you didn't know that or didn't think about that. And that's something I've actually learned when I looked into what Eco-complete is comprised of. And interestingly, Eco-complete also makes a claim uh, that it does provide certain nutrients to the plants or that it has these things in it most likely uh, or, or certain compounds available and it's interesting when we look at the claims and, and many uh, substrates out there are going to make those claims because nobody's really checking on them or calling them out on on making some misleading claims and so generally what we see is that it works like this so these things that they're claiming are in the substrate are there but they're not bioavailable uh, to the plants and the reason for that is consider this so sand a lot of times it's it's a silica based sand and silica's chemical formula is silica SiO2 for oxygen. So it's this silica dioxide, essentially. And the claim there is essentially saying that the substrate with silica sand in it has oxygen. Well, that's technically true, but that oxygen is in a covalent bond uh, with the silicon. And so then it's not actually available to any organisms in the system. That thing is not, that substrate, that sand isn't providing oxygen. It has oxygen in it, but uh, it's bound up in, in essentially the component that makes up sand. And because of that, um, while it's technically true there is oxygen in silica sand, that oxygen isn't available to any of the organisms, and so it's misleading to represent it that way. But unfortunately, a lot of times you will see uh, marketing or advertising in substrates doing just that. So again, using an inert substrate isn't a bad thing. You just need to know how and where to use it and make sure that aligns with the goals you have for your aquascape. You know, there's no sense in using aquasoil or an active substrate in areas that you don't plan on planting. Those are good spots to use an inert substrate like sand. Or if you're on a budget and want to create a low-tech setup that doesn't involve any plants that are going directly into the substrate, so we're talking about epiphytic plants, ferns, anubias, moss, things like that that attach to rocks and driftwood and are not going right into the substrate at all, a great way to go and a great way to save some money is to use pool filter sand or play sand. You can get a 50-pound bag for about 5 to $10, so you can't get any cheaper than that, and it looks really cool. Do you guys ever wonder how the sand in all those aquascape photos always looks so clean? Well, as you've probably learned, hardscape can get a little algae on it over time. And sometimes it looks good, sometimes it doesn't. And this is especially true with sand because sand can get algae on it, but it also can get detritus and mulm and other stuff in it that's going to dull it over time. So how do those guys get those aquascapes looking just sparkling, especially that light-colored sand. Well, basically, there's not much to it. Uh, there's a simple way you can get that sand back into its uh, original pristine look, and that is by simply using a small hose to siphon off the top layer of sand and debris. Uh, then you just replace that that sand that you siphoned off with a little bit of fresh new sand, and voila, you got a very nice sparkling new look uh, to your sand areas in your aquascape. Um, just an idea of how much sand that really takes. It does not take very much. Uh, for reference, my 90 centimeter, 90 centimeter aquascape has a sand foreground and a path through the center. And it's been running for about three years. Uh, and I have gone through about two extra bags of sand in those three years 
um, that I've been siphoning and refreshing the sand. So when you set up a sand aquascape like that and you want to keep the sand fresh, consider getting a, an extra bag or two uh, that'll last more than the length of the aquascape if you're like most of us out there and plan to rescape every once in a while. You'll be able to keep your sand looking nice for when people are going to come over or you're going to take photos of your aquascape. So we just learned that substrates like EcoComplete are actually inert, but that doesn't mean that you can't use them with good success and still have a very heavily planted lush aquascape using them. But you're just going to have to keep in mind that the substrate really is only being used as a place for the plants to root in and not gaining any nutrient value from it. So you have to use something like estimated index where you're overdosing macros and micros into the water column. The plants are taking everything they need from the water column and growing healthy and lush that way. Or I've also seen people use it. I haven't tried it out yet, but using root tabs. So putting the nutrients in some sort of slow release capsule, putting those into the substrate. They then slowly release and dissolve over time so that the plants can take what they need from the roots. Or you can use a combination of the two. So we've talked about inert substrates. What's the other substrate? Well, for the sake of this segment, I'm going to refer to it as an active substrate. Why do I call it active? What makes a soil active? Well, I call it active because a sense, or in a sense, it's able to interact with the nutrients in the water. It's able to store them until plants extract them from the substrate. Active soils are the most, for the most part, they're electronegative. And so what that means is many of our nutrients, things like ammonium, potassium, iron, magnesium, calcium, etc., they're positively charged cations. So cations are positively charged uh, ions and anions are negatively charged ions. Um, anyways, this allows for an interaction between the soil and these cations. Many, um, many soils that are active um, have this negative charge that's able to attract and bind these positive cations, these nutrients that our plants need. Some recommended reading by Sean if you want to dive a little deeper into the science and chemistry of the planted aquarium. There's an article called Understanding the General Chemistry of the Planted Aquarium. It's on Seachem's website. If you go to seachem.com slash articles, you'll see it there. Again, it's called Understanding the General Chemistry of the Planted Aquarium. So I talked a little bit about this ability of soils to bind positive ions known as cations. Well, this property or this ability is what's known as the cation exchange capacity. It's often abbreviated as CEC. In simple terms, it's a measure of how effectively these soils are able to bind nutrients and release them to the plants. So the bonds that are made by the soil are ionic bonds, uh, whereas the bonds that we see in the components of an inert substrate are covalent bonds. The plants are able to access the nutrients from these ionic bonds. They're not as strong nor as permanent as the covalent bonds that we see in, say, silica dioxide or silica sand. The great thing about these nutrient-rich soils with high CEC is that they're able to replenish, to some extent, their nutrient supply. So while they certainly can become exhausted over time, especially if you're not dosing the water column, um, they're able to supply nutrients on a long-term basis to our aquascapes. This allows the aquascapers some wiggle room for growing plants. You don't have to be spot on with your nutrient dosing or make sure that your levels are all exactly where every plant needs it because 
as you will learn or have learned, you know, different plants are going to have different needs, different nutrient demands, different growth rates. And so a one size fits all dosing regimen may not be what's needed, but a good substrate with a high CEC provides this buffering space and can help compensate for any lacking in your dosing regimen and make uh, nutrients available to the roots as well as not just the water column. I should mention that active substrates don't necessarily have to be fancy, expensive commercial substrates either. Now, while I cannot say enough about how great I think Aquasoil is and that pound for pound or liter for liter, I do think it is priced competitively with other active soils that are out there. Many of them don't come in as large of bags as Aquasoil, so consider that they're, they're less dense or more dense or there's some price comparisons that you can make and I think Aquasoil is definitely competitively priced. Um, one reason why I just I use it. But with that aside, you can find options out there with a good CEC that are not expensive or that people use in DIY substrates. And one of those examples would be Akadama bonsai soil. I've never personally used it, but I, I know there's been many scapers out there who've had success using it. It's a baked clay soil, a lot like aqua soil or, or those other uh, commercial active substrates out there. Um, but I think it's probably a little nutrient lean. So that's something to consider when, with your water dosing or even uh, using, you know, root tabs more regularly in the substrate, things like that to take advantage of the fact that it has a decent CEC and it can absorb nutrients and provide them to plant roots. But it may not start as nutrient rich as something like aqua soil. The pros of a DIY substrate are, of course, the cost, uh, but the cons are more or less that it's hard to work with compared to commercial aquarium soil. So I think you have to consider those things. And, and I said with many things, uh, you know, where your budget comes into play when selecting a substrate and how you make those choices um, so that they best align with your budget and your goals. Along that same lines, and this may surprise you a little, but uh, cat litter has been a commonly used DIY substrate out there uh, with a very good CEC. And so uh, while cat litter doesn't come with nutrients intended to grow plants, it is capable of binding those nutrients and becoming enriched and providing those nutrients to the plants. So there's another really interesting option out there for those of you looking at a DIY substrate. And often I'll admit, sometimes I forget about or to, to recommend to people who are asking, but it's a really good option. I wouldn't recommend getting anything with, with scents or some fancy additives, just some really basic cat litter will do the trick and uh, use some root tabs and a good water dosing regimen. And you've, you've got the recipe for a successful, healthy, densely planted aquascape. To conclude uh, the little segment here on choosing a correct substrate, it basically comes down to two things. So first, as we've said many times in this podcast, and many people have said, what are your goals for your tank? It, what type of scape do you plan to do? What plants would you like to grow? Those types of things. And then two, what's your budget? And how does that reconcile with your goals? And how will your substrate choice align with those two things. For example, 
Are you going to decide if an inert substrate is going to work to meet your goals and fit your budget? Is it an active substrate or a combination of the two? With that, once you make that decision, you're one step closer to having a successful aquascape. Next week on the Aquascaping Podcast, Sean and I sit down and have a conversation with one of the hardest working aquascapers out there, Eurice Mitt-JS. This is one of the core things that kind of changed, you know, in my mindset after I went to Lisbon and worked for Amano. And then when Amano suddenly died, you know, I had to reflect everything. I was thinking, you know, what was he living for? You know, what was his goal? And so what was his message uh, for the world? So stay tuned for that episode. You're definitely not going to want to miss out on that one. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us here on the Aquascaping Podcast. I am your host, JR. Don't forget to check us out at aquascapingpodcast.com. You can send in comments and questions to aquascapingpodcast.gmail.com. All of the episodes are available on iTunes as well as Stitcher Radio. Have a good week, everybody, and we'll see you next time. We'll be right back.